I don't like you. I think you're a fake. The sound of your piss hitting the urinal, it sounds feminine. If you were in the wild, I would attack you. Even if you weren't in my food chain, I would go out of my way to attack you. If I were a lion and you were a tuna, I would swim out into the middle of the ocean and freaking eat you. And then I'd bang your tuna girlfriend. <laughs> Hello, friends, and a very happy new year. Coming to you live from lockdown three, or as I like to call it, the worst trilogy ever. <laughs> Join me, as always, two guys that I actually would quite like to see in person, as I've only seen them from the neck up for the last eight months. It's Paul Google Breen and Benjamin Button. Mercer, happy new year, chaps. Happy new year, everyone. How are we all doing? Happy new year, Hammond. I'm just trying to decide, as trilogies go, do you think Lockdown 3 is still slightly better than Spider-Man 3 from 2007? I was about 15 kilos lighter, and Spider-Man wasn't to blame for that, so, you know, fuck Lockdown. <laughs> and our first guest in 2021. To anyone that has worked in cinema over the last 20 years, should know this guy. We are joined by the MD of Altitude Films, Mr. Hamish Mosley. Thanks for joining us, Hamish. Happy New Year. Thanks very much to you guys too. Happy pandemic to you. I hope we managed to get through it unscathed. We're trying our best. We are trying our best. Great. So that's everybody. So we're ready to kick off the New Year podcast then. Uh, we end the last year with a question. So we're starting with the same question. And uh, in 1939's Wizard of Oz, there is a famous snowing scene in the poppy field. After this, the characters happily skip away. Why should they perhaps not have been so happy? So you said it's about poppies and snow. Is it something to do with the makeup of the snow or the poppies or something on the set? You tell me. Was it the snow made from asbestos or something? Was it... That is absolutely correct. Hey. <laughs> You're kidding me. That was a joke. Oh my God. That's terrible. So yeah, we had two correct answers coming in the socials this week. So Steve Dempster commented on Facebook and Kat Mercer posted on Instagram. Both were correct answers. I'm going to read out Kat's exact answer as she put it far more eloquently than I ever could and she said ooh it's because the fake snow they used was made out of asbestos they loved that shit back then I can't believe that <laughs> absolutely <laughs> true apparently back in the 30s and 40s it was a very popular household decoration to have these snowflakes that are almost entirely made of asbestos oh well God. there you go Catherine Mercer obviously no relation to me <laughs> <laughs> she's my sister well done Catherine <laughs> what, when you rewatch that scene and they are absolutely covered head to toe in this stuff you should probably just cringe a little bit that now. is terrible and there we go. Yeah, that's a point to you guys to start the year. I got I got done over pretty quickly. I'll make it a bit trickier next year. Right, on to our regular next year. Next next episode. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> there won't be a there won't be a twenty twenty two. You on to our regular show pre-started end, which is our big picks from the small screen. And it's a highlight of the two or three things we have watched or streamed outside of two films in review and obviously outside of anything that even resembles a cinema at the moment. And we'd like to start off our guest. So, Hamish, what's been entertaining you? Oh, what's been entertaining me? I'm halfway through Queen's Gambit, same as everybody else. Right. Enjoyed that. I finally succumbed to getting Disney Plus over Christmas. I thought I'd resist for most of last year. <laughs> and guess what? pretty good they got some good content on there because <laughs> disney are quite good at making some stuff but i downloaded it selfishly i've got three kids finally i wanted to watch something so that was when we got it so i could watch <laughs> soul yeah it's an interesting film i thought i uh, quite enjoyed it but it's got problems with it too i think that'll do for me fair enough 
All right. That's one of the things that I watched as well. And I I just don't understand why this film is getting middling reviews because the first 20 minutes or so of Soul are unlike any animated film I've ever seen. Like the visuals are absolutely breathtaking, which even fairness to Pixar, their visuals are always insane. Their, their CGI, their animation is absolutely incredible, even in the, in the bad stuff they've done. But what I really loved about this was just the concept of it, like life after death, the way they visualize that. They pay homage to things like Space Odyssey 2001, but there are so many other things that are just so abstract and, and sort of weird to describe, but it, it totally made sense. I, I definitely think it settles down in the middle third to to sort of be a bit more generic, just to sort of let the characters grow. The storytelling definitely sort of takes a beat sort of down. But then at the end, it totally brings it all together, like emotionally and in a storytelling sense. I was blown away. It's the best thing they've done in years. And I don't understand why it's getting all these really middling reviews. It's fantastic. I didn't know it was getting middling reviews, actually. I've kind of, I thought it was getting amazing reviews. And what threw me is, as a film industry executive wanker, I thought it was a bit of a tweener <laughs> in that I didn't, it just didn't, it was crossing different audience demographics. I just felt like in terms of, I loved it in New York. I thought, wow, this is great. It's an adult animation. I'm really enjoying this. It's just human condition stuff, fantastic. Everything was so well sketched and just really beautiful. But then obviously in this kind of purgatory afterlife base we are, I did enjoy that too. But then that kind of turned off the older audience members that I was watching it with. And then the kids had tuned out for the start and it was kind of wasn't pleasing people. And I get it was kind of a bit a matter of life and death, which I love, of course. Everybody should love that film. But it was just, yeah, it didn't really didn't really gel. I love the ending too. There's a, there's a wonderful animator I love called Don Hertzfeld. He was an amazing animator, but it felt like it massively pinched from his entire body of work as well. And that annoyed me a bit because he's made okay. some wonderful films, particularly one called The Meaning of Life. And I thought, oh, come on, Pixar. <laughs> Don't just pinch wholesale from Don Hertzfeld as is, is, is a great animator too. I didn't know he had middling reviews. Yeah, I'd really enjoy it. I thought the, the soundtrack was stunning. I mean, the, the jazz, forgive me, it's going to really annoy me that I can't remember the name of the gentleman that was did the music arranging for the jazz segments they were wonderful and the the more modern score was actually two of the guys from nine inch nails stunningly yeah. which completely blindsided me because it's such a delicate score the mm. the more modern music so i was really surprised that it was them because obviously with nine inch nails you you don't quite get that same tone <laughs> with their stuff it's a very different vibe but i i did really enjoy it i think you're right hamish tonally it, it does shift and it was i was playing the game of who's the voice on that section somewhat because i can't believe it was graham norton who wasn't that bad was uh, yeah. who was pretty good and then richard ayardi yeah who is obviously a very recognizable voice. Great. i did really enjoy it it was if again we've, we've talked about this many many times very frustrating to not be able to see it on the big screen so i think yeah, it definitely. would have looked, looked glorious on a big screen i, I don't think it necessarily lost a massive amount watching it on TV, but I think maybe it would have been a bit more immersive in that larger environment. Definitely. Hammond, have you had a chance to see Soul yet? I am not buying Disney+. Plus. Oh yeah, I forgot you're doing it. Sorry mate, Andy digging Disney my heels in. Fuck Disney. Hey, but that's fine. <laughs> Although, that being said, I did watch a Disney film on the on the animation front, so I hadn't seen Moana from 2016, and I caught up with that over Christmas, and I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was charming, yeah, I thought it was hilarious, I thought it was brilliantly written. Characters you can fall in love with, it was simply lovely. So yeah, I gave into Disney a little bit by watching Moani for the first time over Christmas. I'm still not giving them any more of my money. They don't deserve me subscribing to Disney Plus. Fuck them. Have a free trial. Just binge on it and get it. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I think it's admirable that you're taking a stance in these veganuary, dry January times when everybody's just going to go back to the booze and the meat in February. It's good that you are still there saying no. Do you know what? Do you know what, Mickey? Fuck off. Exactly. I like that. Yeah. No no <laughs> Disney January. So in addition to Soul, also on Disney Plus, sorry Hammond, I watched the entirety of the MCU catalogue 
up to date from the beginning. My sister-in-law was with us and she loves those movies, hadn't seen all of them. So we started at Iron Man, went through to Endgame from start to finish in release date order. Wow. wow. It was a long haul, but worth it. Enjoyed watching them again, forgotten interesting bits and pieces in and watching them sort of fairly close together as well. You can see how well it knits together across that time. And then finally, I watched Death to 2020 on Netflix, which is Charlie Brooker's latest mock documentary about 2020. I thoroughly mm. recommend it. It's just over an hour long. Samuel L. Jackson is in it. They're all playing characters being interviewed about aspects of 2020. That Charlie Brooker, wry, dry, sarcastic wit, it really, really works. And it's definitely an hour well spent. So I hope you'll be able to recommend that. I saw that too. I thought that was a strange. I, I love Charlie Brook and I love Screenwipe and Screenwipe and Newswipe. And, you know, it's terrific every year, kind of look forward to it. But it was exactly the same team, I noticed at the end. But I felt it kind of, it suffered from one of the rules of comedy, which is you shouldn't spend too much on comedies. And it was almost too slick for me. Like it should be a bit, comedy, comedy should be a bit raw and, you know, and, and uh, flat, but it was almost too posh but I, but I did enjoy it I thought it was great but it, yeah it was almost like it was they'd suddenly gone to Hollywood and spent way too, Netflix had given them way too much money it's, to spend on it exactly yeah it's like they they were aware that they were making for an international market as opposed to BBC2 yeah yeah I totally see and understand that completely it didn't have that rough edge and that it had that bite that Charlie Brooker has, but it was still, yeah, a little bit more Hollywood. Okay, I would agree with that. No, I really want to see that. So as well on the Disney Plus over Christmas, I finally caught up with Mulan. Do you know what? It's a perfectly fine adaptation that has a weird mix of really practical, gorgeous vistas. And these visuals that are just, it's shot in China, looks insane, looks amazing. But then it's also got this really aggressive, soft focus green screen that just looks terrible. I'm just like, why not? If you've gone out there, why not commit to that method? Also, if you're going to have witches and magic, why not keep in Eddie Murphy and the wisecrack? dragon i mean he's great he was really missed yao alifa in the lead is fantastic don yen as you would expect absolutely incredible i just don't how many of these have they done now i just don't know what what's the artistic merit that they're getting from re apart from money if that's an artistic merit the dollar signs what are we getting from these remakes because so far like i think to date the only thing i can think of i really like was favreau's jungle book maybe is like slightly better than the original but like everything they've done has just been very mediocre so yeah it's just like another yeah it's fine watch it if you fancy a distraction yeah i mean you're donnie yen fans you guys watch it won't you uh, okay I tell you, I'm, honest, I'm, not, I'm not i'm not that fast by it i was very angry obviously at the time when they pulled it from the schedule yeah i remember i was there that's that still sort of sticks in the craw somewhat. Yeah, fair enough. I had a bit of a Marvel binge as well, Paul. It'll be interesting to hear what you thought of For the Dark World, because I really like this film. It gets a really bad rep, and I can sort of see why. Really messy production. The middle act is very, very muddled, but there's so much in it that works. Like, more of yeah. it works than doesn't. It lays down yeah, the yeah. groundwork, though, in the humour for, for Ragnarok. It builds further on Asgard, and I love the production design of that. Hiddleston's amazing. Rosso as Thor's mum is fantastic. Eccleston looks totally lost under the makeup as the Dark Elf, so you don't really feel that he's really that threatening. But the final set piece is basically the, the video game Portal. It's yeah. still absolutely fantastic. What really annoys me, every time I mention this film to people, is they're like, well, yeah, he got the dodgy... Uh, tube directions to Greenwich like there must be so many American films that get like geography wrong all the time but UK dwellers we just don't pick up on it but for some reason for getting wrong directions at Charing Cross three stops this way is what I'm referring to that's not how you get to Greenwich you've got to change lines but like why do people get so annoyed by that the script is too loose it needs to be a lot tighter they could have knocked out 15-20 minutes to make it a much tighter film but I don't think it's a bad film at all I, like you said I think it really just sets the groundwork for where we get to with Ragnarok it works in the context of that Thor universe but also in the MCU as well it it worked for me I, there's not in the entire run of films I watched yes there are better films than some um, there are weaker ones but I don't think there's a bad one 
in all of them. Mm. Hamish, you're looking a bit twitchy when we talk about Marvel. Are you a Marvel fan? Oh, sorry. I just thank you. I was just falling asleep. <laughs> the, uh... <laughs> I guess not then. <laughs> no, uh, I'm just. I try and run a an independent film company and it's just i'm intensely competitive and they take over the world listen whenever mm. i go and watch a marvel film in the cinema it's very fantastic they're incredibly well made they make great talent filmmaking decisions in terms of the producers and that you know really interesting choices for directors chloe's out i mean inspired you know and they've done that time and time again so when after i get off my pretentious very low horse and finally go and see a marvel film in the cinema at home they're always fantastic really well made blockbusters and don't get the Wrong impression. I love it. I love a big blockbuster too. And they're, they're, they're great. I'm just jealous. <laughs> they take over everybody's yeah. kind of cultural space and really capacity to, yeah. to swallow up all the oxygen. But I know they don't swallow up your guys' oxygen because you just watch everything. So that's fine. But they seem to swallow up the general moviegoers' uh, space to watch anything else. Most people only go to the cinema a couple of times a year and they're usually just for a couple of Marvel films. So mm. that's difficult if you're trying to release anything else. No, they're brilliant. And they're, they're brilliant at what they've done. You know, it's amazing. Yeah. There you go. Also, wasn't there this article of the cultural vacuum that not having a, a Marvel film left in 2020? It's like all the things that were wrong in 2020. That I wouldn't say one of those as well. We skipped one year where we didn't have a Marvel release. I mean, give me a break. I'm <laughs> just gonna going have, to... We're going to have 34 next year. I'm just going to edit out the bit in my notes where I'm talking about Spider-Man 3. And the first line is, I've missed the fact that there hasn't been a Marvel film in 2020. <laughs> Good call. <laughs> delete, delete, delete. Hammond, what have you been watching, mate? Yeah, so we've spoken about Moana already. Since our last episode dropped on Christmas Eve, from then till now, I've watched 24 films and got stuck into some TV shows as well. So I've been going for it. But my top picks, I went through my letterboxed account. I had a Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor double bill. And the two films I watched were Stir Crazy from 1980 and Hear No Evil, See No Evil from 89. Nice. Films I grew up with, you know, shoot me straight back to my childhood. Essentially the same film told a slightly different way. You know, a, a wrongly accused pair getting into all sorts of hilarious scopes. I love everything about this pair. Everything that Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor did, I was glued to growing up and I still am now. Um, Richard Pryor is by far my favourite stand-up comedian. So if you ever get the chance to watch Richard Pryor live, then please do so. You'll very quickly see how he influenced Eddie Murphy, Kevin Hart, Dave Chappelle and countless others. So yeah, so I just went back to the 80s. And, but from everything I've watched over the last few weeks, those are the two films that just stuck with me. I could almost recite them line for line. Preview time. highlights from some of our current West End attractions. So on to our proper show starter then as Ben starts to, um, I don't know, sprinkle glitter on dog shit and talk about the box <laughs> office. <laughs> I, do you know what? I'm not going to lie. I didn't even try and get a box office top three uh, for the UK. I mean, just what's the point? It's depressing. Let's, <laughs> let's just move straight on to Wonder Woman 1984, which was a massive hit on pirate sites. Oh, colour me surprised. <laughs> what a surprise. Well, actually, it had a very successful opening weekend, better than analysts for the box office but let's focus on the pirating so yes on on saturday which was so christmas this year was on friday on the saturday after christmas nearly 10 percent of all pirate downloads on all torrent sites across all various different bits of data were wonder woman 1984 so dozens of high quality piracy copies appeared on torrent streaming and pirate download sites uh, they're saying it's impossible to capture all the downloads perfectly but it's safe to say millions of people downloaded a pirate copy and they reckon that actually more people probably did download it and stream it illegally than actually watched it on on HBO Max or went to a cinema to watch it. I think that happens with any any film though, you know, any any sorry, any massive film, if it's the biggest hit 
ever, it, it will always have a massive amount of piracy. It just is an indication of popularity as well. And that was the only game in town for December, really. So it's not surprising. I think the difference in this case was the instantaneous, like day and date release. Usually, obviously, it takes a few hours for something or even 24 hours or so before something that's filmed in a cinema then appears on the market. The quality as well is not going to be as good as it was on this Wonder Woman 84 pirate copy, which apparently was 4K, 5.1 sound. Like, yeah, pristine. Yeah. So not to be unexpected. And we'll be seeing more of that, obviously, as Warner's continue with their HBO Max plan. So yeah, as I said, Wonder Woman 1984 had a, a fantastic opening weekend. Um, unfortunately, it did take a 67% second weekend drop, which was Ooh. not great. So they now think domestically it's going to end on about 35 million, which means it won't beat Tenant's 58 million. I mean, it did, at the time, it did have the best opening weekend with $17 million for a post-pandemic movie. But again, it's not really fair to draw comparisons because more cinemas were closed in the States when what, Tenant came out and there are more cinemas open now. And going to the cinema on Christmas Day in, in the States is a really big thing. They encompass it as part of their sort of traditions. I know this because it happens in Daddy's Home 2 with Mel Gibson. <laughs> Just a couple of other things. DC is reporting now that they're going to release multiple HBO Max movies simultaneously with films that are out in the cinema. So uh, they're going to release four films. And this is 2022 moving forwards. They're going to release four DC films a year in the cinema, but then also have two on HBO Max, which means there'll be things like two Batman franchises running concurrently. Doesn't this really confuse audiences when you've got two different franchises running at the same time, two different actors playing yeah, Batman I, and, and leave, what have you? Just leave Batman alone full stop. I mean, it's been done to death. Just give it a few years and move on to some of the other properties that they've got that they should be using properly. I didn't understand that. Sorry. So they're going to have the Robert, their planning is for the Robert Patterson in cinemas. And then what are they they're putting on on HBO Max is a different Batman. A different Batman. So the rumours at the different moment, iteration. it might wow. be Batman fu- Forever or Future Batman. I, d- I don't know the exact term. I'm Batman, Future Batman, something like that. Batman Beyond, they are. I guess, I guess they're trying to learn from the Netflix and Disney Plus is that you just want to be kind of mainline. That, that's my streamer and they've got everything for me. And if I just want to get lost in that universe, I'll just get lost. I've got everything for me. I don't need to look at Netflix. I don't need to look at anything else. I'll just be a HBO kind of drone. And that's probably what they're going for. It's an interesting strategy. See how mm. it plays out for them. I imagine you can't really talk too much about it, but do you think it would be a strategy that Altitude would ever think about doing, releasing things simultaneously or break the window? I talk about everything. I'm going to be very <laughs> candid with you. And okay. The, and, uh, yeah, I mean, everything you've just been talking about, I'm deeply immersed in, you know, from a UK perspective. So we, yeah, I mean, we've been releasing day and date films for years now with Sky and we, you know, we work with Netflix, we work with Apple and Amazon and, um, and our own and I'm I'm for I'm a cinema guy. I'm for the theatrical window. You know, there's piracy, but it's just trying to keep cinemas uh, alive and going. And but I think we've always wanted this flexible window, really, with one size shouldn't fit all. And um, what's happening now is just we're getting the pandemic has expedited changes that were probably coming anyway. So yeah, I don't think it's the end of the world or the end of the cinemas as we know it. Mm. I think it's fascinating. But the, the the cinemas have been very old fashioned in upholding these kind of window laws that they or rules sorry that they would see them as laws for, for years now and that's been to the detriment of distribution uh, distributors and audiences so yeah lots of interesting changes afoot i'm all for change it's just it'll just evolve really the one thing that's not going to go away is really good films and people loving really good films so mm. there's nothing to worry about I mean, the next article was literally AMC struggling financially but i don't know <laughs> do we want to talk well, about yeah that? it's just related to that though it's just you know 
it will happen. It will change ownership. We always know that people who want to gather. This is the whole point of lockdown. Now we're so fed up because we can't we can't get out and gather. Mm. And we will want. We, of course, we want to go and see our mates and be out with our family and do whatever. And one of those things is cinemas. That is not going to go away. We love films and we love to gather and watch films together. That is not going to go away. If it happens that the owners of these businesses change hands because for one reason or another they've had to or they've gone under, that they'll just be bought by somebody else. And I feel very sorry for individuals throughout this. There's lots of suffering in that. That's absolutely terrible. And I hope as many people can keep their jobs and their livelihoods as possible. But businesses change hands, have always changed hands. And that's this is what will happen here. I don't think you're seeing, it's not the same evolution as we're seeing with your high street where that has will disappear and go online. Due to, uh, this is this is just a, a change that we're going through. You might be going to the yeah. the Apple multiplex in Yeovil in six months' time we'll, we'll, this, as they've taken over Cineworld or something like that. So we'll, we'll see. I, I I worry for the people that are employed right now for, for AMC, but I don't think those cinemas will go away. I download your podcast. I sync it up. It's now time to turn the spotlight directly onto our guest. Hamish is a seasoned film executive with experience across exhibition and distribution and has been working in the industry for nearly 25 years, starting as a projectionist and then going on to work across various different companies. In 2013, he joined Altitude Film, one of the most progressive film companies in the UK, responsible for resonant titles such as Rocks, Moonlight, The Florida Project, Diego Maradona and Amy, which is the most successful British documentary of all time. So Hamish, I guess you can't really do what you do without loving films. So tell us where it all started. Where does the love of film come from? And do you remember the first film you saw in a cinema? Yes, I do. I'm embarrassed though. I've just been chuffing off and then realised that I probably shouldn't have spoken up until this point now. I'm sorry about that. You just (laughs) brought me in. You should have told me to keep my mouth shut. What was the first film I saw in the cinema? I can't remember it, but I'm told it was Pete's Dragon. Amazing. Nice. Not the latest Beats Dragon, probably in about 1979, because I'm very old. Jim Dale. Jim, Jim Dale. <laughs> Going down the stairs with the doctor. <laughs> yeah, Jim Dale. And the first film I can remember seeing in the cinema is The Dark Crystal, which scared the shit out of me, I think, as a five or six year old, <laughs> as they crumbled to dust. And I can remember traveling quite far on the bus to go and see E.T. when it came out, 1982, queuing around the block to see it in the cinema and not getting in because it was sold out. If that was now, they would have 30 separate showings of it going on every 10 minutes and I would have definitely (laughs) got it. So tell us a bit about how you got into the industry and how you ended up at Altitude. I got in, I was on the dole. I was living in Wolverhampton. I I love making films and tinkering and messing about making plasticine animations and just loving the pro i love that my animation's my thing so i love i love like making films and only rubbish kind of amateur films but just tinkering around i was never a ma- massive film watcher but then i was on the dole and Cineworld, who you may have heard of they were opening their cinema in wolverhampton where i was where i lived and uh yeah I, went, I applied for a job as a projectionist and i got it and i spent four years as a projectionist there which was a brilliant job and t- they were building lots of multiplexes around the country so i traveled around various towns and uh yeah traveled to uh, opening cinemas as a projectionist and then i went for a job as a film programmer in london i didn't even know what that was and i, I went for that job mainly just so I could, as a day trip to london i didn't think i'd get it and they gave it to me which is amazing but then i had to come out of the projection booth after four years squinting out of the darkness <laughs> and got that job which is wonderful you know programming 
programming cinemas, watching films for a living and uh, and programming them. And, and it, it was just the most amazing job. And then I found out about this other part of the equation, which is film distribution, which I hadn't even heard of until that point. So I started dealing with these distributors. And there was a distributor that I had my eye on called Momentum Pictures. They released stuff like A Room for Romeo Brass and they released Lynn Ramsey films. I thought they're, they're really cool and do good stuff. And I found out they had the script for this film called Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind, which is directed by Michel Gondry, which you know, obviously now, but I, I thought I must work for this company. And I, I just said to them, I, if there's any chance I could come and work for you guys, I'd love to just work on this film. And they let me come and work for them. And I, and I ended up working for that company for 10 years and uh, working my way up through there and releasing nearly 200 films with them. And uh, yeah, just very lucky, really, just keep asking the question and managing to not get fired. <laughs> so obviously, you're now MD of Altitude. So what's the day-to-day look like? And really, how big an impact has 2020 had on you and Altitude? It's had a massive impact on, on everybody. I've, I've gone balder. I went, I went, I went, I went bald 20 years ago, but the, the follicles are now fully emptied and I am now totally hairless, Duncan Goodhue style. Yeah, Altitude, I, I was recruited to set Altitude up the distribution arm seven years ago, 2013. And we've, we've released a lot of films now too. Yeah, we, we like to do really interesting and distinctive films that we think we can break out to a, to a mass audience. You know, films that we love to see that, that might not otherwise and we uh, get a get a large audience for, and the important thing is to release them with, with ambition and try to get interesting films out and try to try to get a mass audience for them if we can. Typified, I guess, by Amy, you know, a documentary and getting a mass audience for that, and but lots of other films too. And the pandemic, yeah, I mean, God, it changed everything. We we actually we were releasing a film on the lockdown weekend last March, March thirteenth. We had a really good Irish film out called Calm with Horses, which is you know really interesting a cerebral irish gangster film that's in my top 10 for last year i love that film yeah we well we loved it too and uh we were about to release it where we were we it was, it was on release oh. five days and then the cinema got shut down so uh, and then that was it but we, you know it's interesting we've all it's been a fascinating period it's it's like we're in a war you know everyone's had a kaleidoscope of crazy challenging experiences uh during this and and this was this was just but one of those, you know, we, our whole business changed very quickly. We had a really exciting April coming. We hadn't released much for the start of the year. We'd been busy releasing other people's films. But for Netflix, you know, we released Uncut Gems and The Irishman, which is amazing in cinemas at that point. We were preparing to release a lot of our own films. So we had a, a great film called Rocks. We had a documentary about with David Attenborough called David Attenborough Life on Our Planet with uh, with the WWF and and, uh, and Netflix. And they were all about to be released in, in, uh, in the April and May. And suddenly we got shut down. So we just had to kind of, like everybody else who's doing anything else, just take a step back and, and, and look at what we're doing and change our plans. Pivot seems to be the big word that everyone uses. I'm trying to not say it. Damn it. Bingo. It said pivot. It said pivot. We pivot. Unprecedented use of the word pivot. Brilliant. So looking at Altitude then, I mean, obviously you've got a very solid and critically acclaimed distribution slate. What really drives your decisions when you're trying to choose which films you work with? Well, it's a, it's a mixture. You know, the main thing is we're trying to run a viable business and keep that going. And it's, that's very hard in the film industry and in the UK. And if you're not a studio, so survival, it's all about survival and then and then trying to thrive. So balance and that involves what we like to do is releasing really interesting and distinctive films and also maybe films that may be more 
commercial uh, and more mainstream suited or something that might be on home end. So I wouldn't say we're pretentious. You know, we don't just do, and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way, but we don't just do high art. It's good to have a balanced slate of all sorts of films, from family films, you know, interesting art films, new directors, established directors, different genres, because it's the, the cliche is true. Nobody knows what's really going to, nobody knows anything, the William Goldman quote, nobody knows what's really going to work. So it's a balance between going what you think might work from an analytical perspective, looking at what's worked in the past and what you think might work in the future, and also the more fun bit an emotional decision and just falling in love. And that's really great. You know, you just go to a film festival, you can go to Cannes, Berlin, Toronto, just fall in love with something. Mm. And that sometimes works and sometimes it doesn't. So, you know, we fell in love with Moonlight. You know, we watched that in Toronto and just didn't know what it was. Saw the trailer, thought that looks incredible. That's the first film we must prioritize and saw it absolutely blown away begged and begged and fought really hard to get that film for the UK and obviously went on to do what it did and that was amazing but sometimes you can fall in love with a film and it doesn't work and the green room was one of those green room again watched that in Cannes it blew the I don't know if you've seen it but it blew the roof off the cinema it's a fantastic so, kind of Patrick really Stewart. brutal thriller yeah Patrick Stewart yeah punks versus left-wing neo-nazis and um it's fantastic and but for for one reason or another it, it didn't work, you know, we, we lost money on that film, but proud to, you just, that's the game. It's an odds game. And so you kind of, you, you try and have a, a broad hand. So one of them can work to pay for the, the other five or 10 that don't. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Great. Okay. So we like to ask our guests when they come to the podcast about guilty pleasures. And is it a concept you actually believe in? We'll find out. But do you have yourself a guilty pleasure, a film that you really, really rate that is perhaps misunderstood by people critically or commercially? It just, it just didn't resonate. But for you, you absolutely love it. Yeah. There's a film that I could defend that is really good that everybody else thinks is not good but there's a guilty pleasure which you know is not good but you just enjoy it anyway and there's obviously plenty of those and that's what I thought about actually and I love King Kong in all its iterations but I love King Kong 1976 with Jeff Bridges which is not a good film <laughs> but it's something about it it's just so sumptuous the music is fantastic it's shot in gorgeous cinema scope Jeff Bridges looks and looks and sounds fantastic Jessica Lang is really sexy but you know is this beautifully shot imagery of the guy in a? It's a you know it's a guy in a monkey sh uh, suit and it's been shot at very high speeds, really slow motion, Godzilla style, Toho style, and it's a, it's a not very good film, but it's <laughs> but it but I've always loved it and I've seen it so many times and obviously it's poignant because it's the twin towers he climbs up rather than uh, the Empire State Building. I'd, I'd say it's got its virtues and I would try to defend it, but I, I, I wouldn't, I know it'd be a weak argument because it's, it's not a good film. <laughs> Fair enough. Another film, which is a, a strange film that I, again, I, I used to watch a lot and it's Steven Soderbergh's The Limey, which is such a bizarre film. I think Terrence Stamp gives a, an appalling performance in this film. Have you seen The Limey? You tell him I'm coming. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> it's such a strange film, but it's so compelling. I, I think it's terrible, but we just used to watch it over and over. It's kind of compelling. And it also has one of the most amazing director's commentaries on it as well. It, 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 it's kind of scary in places. They really mess about with the sound and they, it cuts out. And it's worth a listen to the commentary on that because it's the most bizarre, surreal commentary to it that sounds amazing i absolutely love a bad director's commentary i'm definitely gonna have to check that out but yeah there's a couple of guilty pleasures maybe 
Maybe they're just bad films. Thank you very much indeed. That's great. Ladies and gentlemen, your projectionist tonight is Eric. Eric, who has a hot, hot, thirsty job. He does very, very well. Unlike you, hasn't time to check himself. Unlike you, here, or a, or a, or a, or a. So we're moving on then to one of our regular features, which is our two films in review, picked by me. Uh, so I wanted to start the new year with a documentary, because I love documentaries and I wanted to watch one. So here we have it. So we started with Crip Camp, A Disability Revolution. I wanted to be part of the world, but I didn't see anyone like me in it. I hear about a summer camp for the handicapped run by hippies. Somebody said you probably will smoke dope with the counselors, and I'm like, sign me up. Have to catch an edit and find yourself. There I was. I was at Woodstock. Even when we were that young, we helped empower each other. It was allowing us to recognize that the status quo is not what it needed to be. Released on Netflix in 2020, this is a documentary centered around a groundbreaking summer camp which galvanizes a group of teens with disabilities to help build a movement forging a new path toward greater equality. So interested to hear your guys thoughts on this i i like this i thought it was really good i thought it was a really solid documentary however i did have a few issues with it so firstly like if you watch the trailer and you read the description of the film it feels like it's focusing on camp jennard the camp that they all went to in the summer and that's the start of the of the story but they don't really talk about the camp and how the camp was formed and who formed the camp and why it existed and why it went away but they spend a lot of time in that headspace reminiscing characters sort of talking about how they really came to themselves came into sort of feeling more confident as as people with these disabilities and that was all fantastic but that whole section i just felt we could have got through that so much quicker to get to the real meat of this which is the political action and the demonstrations and the things that led to social cultural and political change in this example like that stuff was amazing and like any good documentary it shines a light on something that i had absolutely no idea that this was this happened that all this stuff was going on in the states at this time in history and it was amazing seeing all that stuff and i was just wondering why the documentary has got the name uh, you know crip cramp like why is it focusing on the camp why isn't it focusing more in its marketing and in its uh, title on that latter half because i found for me that was the really engaging bit of the story i don't know about you guys crip camp is was was the anchor for everything that came afterwards because it gave mm. those that had disabilities the knowledge that they weren't being given in the outside world that they actually had a voice and that they they were as capable as anybody else and that they could bring about they could do whatever they wanted and what they decided to do was actually create change in mm. the United States. It's pivotal. So for me, it was the balance was right. They, they'd spent time okay. talking about this place. So you understood how they were able to get that much energy to take to take something that took, was it to 1990? Mm-hmm. It was, yeah. was the year yeah. that they finally signed off on it. Bear in mind that it was the early 70s when they'd actually started these actions. It, for me, it was, it was, the balance was spot on that you needed to completely understand Crip Camp Mm. to be able to understand how they were able to do what they needed to do. And boy, did they go to some extreme measures to finally get equality within the law. I thought it was very... um, There's almost two documentaries in there, wasn't there, which is the historical document. Both both of them are really fascinating and valid. And, you know, but maybe that that could be, like you were saying, that could be a fault of the film where where you're left wanting more and you feel like I needed to more of an overview of, what happened historically at the end mm. of the story or, or that fleshing out. But, but because they focused, the, 
I thought that was so wonderful, though, that the Crypt Camp itself, and it was just being hanging out in that camp, was just some of the footage and just being there. It was very, it was very attractive and winning, and you just felt good watching it. Mm-hmm. It was just very human and had a big heart, and it just had a great time watching it and, and feeling so good for them that they could finally be themselves in that camp, and it, it emulated that feeling in you. I mean, just with the distributor's hat on, that's the kind of film you want to release. That's the, that's the film, because it, it's, it's tricky subject matter, you know. Will people kind of go for that? Is it off-putting for people, you know? Uh, is, it, is it a bit legal, the disability? That, that, that doesn't sound kind of commercial, but then you just watch it. But it's fantastic, and it's got a great big heart, and that's the kind of film. I'm not surprised it won the Audience Award at Sundance. You know, it's a crowd pleaser. That's lovely, and um, and hope it leaves you wanting more. And I think that's that's it's doing its job there as a documentary because you're you're really invested in those characters now, and. I'm sure if you haven't already, you know, I'm interested. I want to read up about what happened there and that story and I'm invested in it and I'll, I'll know, I'd like to know more. I'm super grateful that the People's Video Theatre existed and we've been able to enjoy just bucket loads of that black and white footage from inside the camp. Yeah. Where, yeah. Where the subjects were able to just document freely and willing and speak their minds and the lady that was suffering cerebral palsy quite badly was speaking and the documentarian was like, well, does anyone understand? And the guy across the table was like, yes, yep, she's this and, the, and just nailed it and she was like yeah that's exactly what i was trying to communicate so yeah, that was a beautiful moment they had that that such tight bond denise jacobson having her appendix removed because the doctors wouldn't believe she was sexually active and she took pride in her gonorrhea was an incredibly uplifting yeah, it was a slightly, slightly odd tale but for her to be recognized as a functioning adult that was a real turning point the footage of the 504 sitting in 1977 was again incredible they were lucky enough to have a journalist that attached himself to this story and just got some incredible footage and they must have been going through just absolute agony but they knew that they were fighting for so much more and that came across to me in this documentary in absolute boatloads this the the human investment in this was was incredible i mean when woodstock was happening i remember being at my grandmother's listening on the transistor radio and saying, wish I could go, wish I could go, wish I could go. And then when I went to Janine, it was like, there I was, I was in Woodstock. The music and the people. And just feel like these people are crazy, you know, I mean, in a good way. And I think going back to your point, Ben, the Camp Janine stuff, it was almost like a like a backstage story of, you know, getting the band together and showing what they're going to go on to do. Because as they're, mm. you're seeing the parades down the street and they're kind of, their names are like highlighted as they're coming down the street because these are the people that you've seen in the camp previously. And I just, I, th- I thought it was brilliant. I think it's captured everything that I wanted it to capture. But yeah, you're right, Hamish. I now just want to kind of go forward and see the, and the fact that the, the sitting was in 1977 and nothing really budged until 1990 is nothing short of criminal. And I'm, yeah. I'm glad that, that documentaries like this exist and it does does shine a light on it. Uh, yeah, I mean, sorry, now I sound like an absolute heartless bastard. You sound like a bastard. I, no, I did, <laughs> I did really, that footage was amazing. You invest in, in the people in the story because of this really intimate footage that exists in this wonderful place. And that, you know, that was great. And I did really like the way the film bookended with that, with having some of the key interviewees come back to the same camp and just see it was basically like a construction site mm. now. And that was really nice. That was the really 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 touching but i think for me i wanted to get to the political stuff like quicker but i guess you know if you remove that stuff at the beginning would i be as invested maybe not is is what you guys are saying to me so moving on into our second film in review and this is hillbilly elegy again released on netflix in 2020 i thought your mama was gonna be all right (laughs) be happy i know i could have done better but you you got to decide you want to be somebody 
I've been doing real good. I just had a down month. I got an interview tomorrow, Mom. Otherwise, I... Oh, you know me. I always land on my feet. You let her get away with this every time. I told you that I would do better. You always say that. You're and lying. I always try. You got to think about these kids. What do you think I've been thinking about since I was 18 years old, huh? Directed by Ron Howard, starring Amy Adams and Glenn Close. This is about a Yale law student drawn back to his Appalachian hometown, reflecting on his family's history and his own future. What did you guys think about this? It left me cold. And I wasn't sure if it was me, if I was just missing something. But it, for me, it felt like, like an exercise in Oscar baiting, in that how many scenes can we have as our clips for the Oscar ceremony? It was people trying to sort of out act each other up to a point. I'm not saying the performances were bad. That's not what I'm saying at all. But it just seemed like an exercise in that. And it left me cold. I felt like I was watching. I was like almost Brechtian in that I was being kept on the outside, not being allowed to empathize with the characters because it was a performance I was watching as opposed to being able to engage and emote with it. You got to take care of business. You got to go to school. You got to get good grades to even have a chance. Mom was the best in her class. What's the point? I'm talking about a chance. You might not make it, but you sure as hell won't if you don't try. Why do you even care what I do? I ain't gonna live forever. Who's gonna take care of this family when I'm gone? And I wasn't sure if it was me, so after after I watched it, I went to read some reviews just to see if I just got it wrong. And then I, I listened to Mark Kermode's review, and it encapsulated everything that I was thinking and it, it was exactly what as, I, as I've just said and that he felt disengaged from it as well and he was watching good performances but not being able to actually be completely emotionally involved in the story and it I don't know it just left me cold it just mm-hmm. left me cold yeah yeah it's hard to disagree I mean Ron Howard has done very little wrong if you ask me as a director mm. from Da Vinci Code right through to his recent documentaries from The Beatles to Pavarotti but this this was a tough watch Glenn Close all but saves the film but there are a lot of issues does very little to explore Glenn Close's character does very little to explore Amy Adams' character it doesn't address the real issues of the effects of drug abuse and living in poverty everything is spelled out in minute detail and that's what bothered me nothing was left for the audience to contemplate the flashbacks the constant narration was almost ticking off a fact list and i think aiden said it on the last podcast where he said he hates a wikipedia biopic and that's what this felt like to me it was a wikipedia biopic. it's almost like they were reading through the book that this was based on and just page by page writing a script and just ticking it off the empire magazine review said that this is a story told generically with dialogue that is the stuff of motivational instagram quotes and i think <laughs> and that's that's tricky to wholly disagree with that sentiment isn't it so i mean i was surprised at the runtime it was over two hours and it still felt rushed it's almost like they got to the third act feel good installment and that still felt forced. Yeah, so it just just didn't do it for me this at all, I'm afraid. I don't disagree with either of you. You've got absolutely... I mean, you're right. It is way too long. Some of the staging is, is very showy. The narration at the beginning really doesn't... I mean, I think narration anyway, generally speaking, as a filmic device, I cannot stand it. I just think it's... I think it's lazy. I think it's lazy screenwriting. But I really like this. I thought it was a lot better than the trailer led it on to be. And I think it's because of those performances. And I think, yes, Glenn Close is amazing. But Amy Adams is fucking incredible in this film. I mean, she's always incredible. But she's absolutely amazing in this. What the fuck, Ray? Stay out of my house! You're a piece of shit, you know that? Take your shit, bitch! Hey, get down here and talk to me, motherfucker! You're not your goddamn business, boy! 
You're a hillbilly Luther. You ain't even got any of your teeth. You junkie whore! Hey, don't call my mom a whore, you son of a bitch! And also, the main guy, I've never seen uh, the older version of uh, J.D. Vance's character, oh. is a guy called Gabriel Basso. I thought he was incredible. I thought he really sold the story. And I really liked the way, in a sort of Nolan style, it flashed between the different periods of this family history. And for a Ron Howard film, who's usually a very pedestrian filmmaker, I think he shot it really beautifully. And I thought there were some really nice, scenic, lovely shots, especially the sort of the stuff at the beginning in the forest, the river and then the trees and all that luscious life. I, I thought it was great and I got on board with it. And I, I could see that it wasn't perfect. I could see that it was really grabbing me by the side going, give me a fucking Oscar. But <laughs> when the performances are this good and you're invested and I was invested, obviously it left you guys cold, but I was invested and I really liked it. I thought it was a lot better than it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you're absolutely right. Was shot beautifully. The cinematography at the beginning was was great. When they're in Jackson, it's fantastic. I think the the kid that played young JD was incredible. I thought he did it. Yeah, he did a really, really good, good well. job. Amy Adams, yes, brilliant. At times, I absolutely despised her character. But I think Paul's right. Is you are just watching. It, it, there was very little cohesion between everybody, and I just really I, I, I struggled to care if i'm honest with you at the end i was you know when amy adams is asking him to stay and he wants to leave i was screaming at the screen you have to go please just go please <laughs> just go but that's probably about as emotional as the film made me when i was just begging him to get out of that motel room and go and live his future up until that point yeah, it was just okay. it, yeah it just wasn't really working for me i was gonna say it's for me it's like the film version of mansplaining it was just <laughs> it was just it was just showing it was showing you everything this is what this is this is what this is not that allowing the audience to interpret and get that information themselves it was just it, it, it was it was hollywood's version of hillbilly elegy rather than using obviously because the source material was supposed to be an amazing book and mm. for me it hollywoodized the source material and mansplained everything from, okay. from start to finish i thought it earned that crescendo and i like that talking about sort of touches that aren't spelled out to you the way that there was that repetition of her reaching out to him to say look please stay with me and he appreciates that he he needs to actually go and yeah i was exactly like you Hammond. i was saying just get out of there mm -hmm. i felt that it had earned it by that point i felt that the crescendo had built quite nicely but yeah no let's go again he does not get it Super. So on to our New Year special feature then, which is our top five films that we are most looking forward to in 2021. Hopefully at some point cinemas will exist again. Uh, but to start, Hamish will give us a rundown of Altitude's release schedule for 2021. Oh, great. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to uh, do it as I kind of find my notes. <laughs> Remind myself of what we're releasing. Because, yeah, I mean, we're recording this now. Just as Boris is locked down again. So the change the plans are all changing again. So how how are we going to release these films? I don't know. But as I said before, you know, uh, I'm confident the cinemas will come back and we'll, we'll do everything we can to help them come back. Can't help them with a Marvel film, which is what they all need. They need James Bond to stay put. They need a mixture of blockbusters and smaller films as well. So hopefully we can we can give them some gems. We've got some really cool stuff coming up. We've got a really great film called Minari. Oh, Minari, sorry, is how it should be pronounced, which is actually an American film, but following a Korean-American family who kind of uproots their lives and set up a farm 
in the middle of Arkansas. And it's a real American dream kind of tale. And it's released by A24 in the States and we'll be releasing it here, we hope, as soon as possible as, as cinemas open. Um, I'm hopeful in March, but that's a really wonderful human condition film. Uh, it's really up, up our street, actually, the kind of film we'd love to release. So keep a uh, gem, keep an eye out for that one. And okay. um, we've got a documentary about Tina Turner, which is uh, produced by Simon Chin, who produced Man on Wire and Searching for Sugarman. Amazing. He's a great producer. Uh, and this is, again, this is in our in our wheelhouse too. You know, we released Amy, we, we did uh, Whitney about Whitney Houston, and this is about Tina Turner. But what really comes across with this is she's just wonderful. She's such an amazing woman who's overcome such you know, adversity in her life. And you really get to celebrate her pomp, you know, of being her so amazing in the 80s. And she just totally invented herself and uh, created herself and became the biggest pop star in the world, you know, at one point. And she's great. She's just so much kind of a celebration of, of this strong woman and strong women in general. And it's great. We have a really interesting film. This is one where we saw in, in Berlin. And uh, it's a documentary called Gunda. And it's a documentary about a pig. It's black and white. It has no dialogue in it apart. And the sound is just of the wild sound of nature. And so it won't be for everybody, but it is pure cinema. It's directed by this guy called Victor Kosakowski, if I pronounce his name correctly. And it is pure cinema. I mean, we do need to wait until cinemas reopen, I think, for this one, because it's just immersive. And it's, it really makes you think about your relationship with food, obviously, farming, parenting. And you just kind of, you spend 90 minutes living this immersive life on a, on a, you know, very close up detail of this mother pig raising her piglets. Yeah, you kind of have to go with it. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix is an executive producer and Paul Thomas Anderson has said it's one of his favorite films of the last 12 months. So that'll be helpful. We'll have to wheel them out to convince you if I'm not convincing <laughs> you either. Uh, so that, so there's, there's a handful of uh, films that we're looking forward to, to releasing. Amazing. Well, Sounds great. Nice. So number five for me, and I can't confess no huge amount about this, but I'm getting swept along with the hype. And that is Dune. There's something awakening in my mind. I can't control it. What did you see? There's a crusade coming. Do you often dream things that happen just as you dreamed them? Yes. The test is simple. Remove your hand from the box and you die. What's in the box? Pain. So some guys in my gym were talking about this right at the start of 2020 and getting very excited about it, re-watching clips of the 84 version. So I, yeah, I know very little about it, but I've definitely been swept along with the hype train on this. So this is my number five. I fucking love Dennis Villeneuve. I think he hasn't really put a foot wrong in the last couple of years, ever since Prisoners, his sort of English language debut. He did an amazing job with Blade Runner 2049 Arrival, so we know he can do science fiction. It has an insanely stacked cast, just looks absolutely incredible. I think in terms of it sort of being potentially pushed back, I think it's it's a 0% likelihood if HBO Max plan to sort of release it simultaneously as it's released in the cinema. So this is slated for 1st of October 2021. Yeah, Dune, I'm very much looking forward to, but there are 
rumours are legendary pictures who have got 75 they put 75% of the money in there's potential legal action for loss of earnings that's sort of in the rumour mill at the moment that they might be taking against Warner Brothers because of their unilateral decision about uh, about what's going on whether that's actually going to come to fruition who knows but that might have some bearing on it but yeah very much looking forward to it it looks it looks very brown <laughs> from the trailer. there's a lot of brown in it anyway but if it ends up on hbo max find the biggest iphone you can to watch it <laughs> great <laughs> Pool number five. So my number five is Last Night in Soho, which is Edgar Wright's next film, which is due for release. I think it's 23rd of April. So starring Anya Taylor-Joy, Diana Rigg, and Matt Smith. Anya Taylor-Joy plays a woman who finds she can travel back in time to the 1960s, where she ends up meeting her as an idol of hers, as an up-and-coming singer. Everything, apparently, then, it's not quite as it seems, and it's being touted as a sort of horror-stroke-thriller film. If it's Edgar Wright, I mean, I think he always makes interesting cinema and he makes something cinematic, if you if that makes sense. It's always, it's very kinetic. So I'm really, really interested in this. So yeah, that's that's my number five. So my number five, I was going to go with Fast and Furious 9, but I know how you guys feel about the Fast and Furious franchise. So I'm just going to move quickly on to my actual pick, which is the French Dispatch. I mean, it's Wes, it's Timothy Charlemagne. What more do you want? It just looks absolutely incredible. It began as a holiday. Eager to escape a bright future on the Great Plains, Arthur Howitzer Jr. transformed the series of travelogue columns into the French Dispatch, a factual weekly report on the subjects of world politics, the arts, high and low, and diverse stories of human interest. You don't think it's almost too seedy this time? No, I don't. Decent people. Supposed to be charming. Just try to make it sound like you wrote it that way on purpose. It definitely looks Star Wars as a sort of a companion piece to The Grand Budapest Hotel, which is one of my favourite Wes films. So yeah, cannot wait. I was really glad this got pushed back and I'm really looking forward to it. My number four is Last Night in Soho. Ah, yeah. amazing. So my, my number four uh, is The King's Man. So this is the prequel, if you like, to Kingsman, directed by Matthew Vaughan. We've got Gemma Arterton, Matthew Good, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, Ray Fiennes, and it's the origin story of the Kinsman Society group covert team, whatever you call it. The, the trailer obviously was out for, for ages. Again, it's got that same style, that same action style act that the Kingsman films have got, but set in that earlier era, so it's less gadgety if you like. I think it's just going to be quite interesting watching. It just looked, it looked really good fun. Ray Fiennes seemingly having lots and lots of fun, like Colin Firth did in the other ones. So yeah, that's my number four. I really liked the first Kingsman, but the second Golden Army, whatever that film was called, was... Golden Circle. Golden Circle was shocking. I really didn't like it at all. Self-indulgent self-indulgent that's due for release in february 12th of march at the moment yeah i don't think that's gonna stick no no i don't think it will my number four entry is yes i'm very sorry i'm glad there wasn't an mcu film last year and so i'm sort of looking forward to a lot of mcu stuff that's going to come my way first of all one division i know it's not a film but it's coming to disney plus next week actually and i cannot wait to see how the story of vision and wonder continue in a sort of tv form and then in terms of the films, uh, the thing I'm looking forward to the most is Holland and John Watts coming back to do another Spider-Man film. My concern is that Sony are bringing back a lot of older players from different, various different sort of Spider-Man franchises. And essentially they've used the success of Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, the animated film, and they're going to just try and do it in real life. I'm worried they're going to overstuff it with villains and it will be as bad as Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 3 from 2007. But I'm, I'm hoping it isn't. And I really, really like the first two entries so far for MCU in Spider-Man. So yeah, really Really looking forward to it. In at number three for me is Nomadland. You are one of those lucky people that can travel anywhere. Yes, ma'am. I and they sometimes call you nomads. My mom said that you're homeless. Is that true? No, I'm not homeless. I'm just houseless. Not the same thing, right? No. 
I was a substitute teacher. It is a tough time right now. You may want to consider early retirement. I need work. I like work. So this is Chloe Zhao tipped for the Best Director Oscar already. This stars Francis McDormand, who I would watch in just damn near anything. So I'm really looking forward to this. So my number three, just sadly nostalgic. I was hoping it was going to have been out by now. It, I know it's going to be pretty, pretty terrible to watch, but just from a nostalgic point of view, Top Gun Maverick, Tom Cruise, Val Kilmer, I mean, and fighter jets i mean it's going to be the same story told again but they're just old uh, but, but i think it's going to look spectacular so yeah top gun mavericks my number three uh, number three for me is the green knight david lowry's new project from a24 hamish are you guys distributing this in the uk as well we're not sadly oh, it's with another distributor so i can't endorse it i mean i am looking forward to it but i just can't endorse it i mean yeah, no, i'm sure it'll be fantastic I, I really like david lowry i think he's great i loved a ghost story i thought that was fantastic yeah. and uh this will be great too it makes me think of like a handmade handmade films you know in the 80s it feels like it could be a bit terry gilliam-esque and a bit of excalibur in Definitely. there so uh, yeah. I, I love a big sumptuous off the wall fantasy yeah. so let's see i think dave patel is absolutely fantastic we've spoken about him before on the podcast he's really won me around and i cannot wait to sort of see him do this david lowry and just his touch i think as well on a sort of period setting but with that lowry kind of take on it I, as you said like i think it's going to look really really good so yeah really excited for that and that's out in july well my number two is paul's number three and it is top gun maverick and i am not ashamed i fucking love top gun <laughs> Your instructor is one of the finest pilots this program has ever produced. His exploits are legendary. What he has to teach you may very well mean the difference between life and death. Your reputation precedes you. I have to admit I wasn't expecting an invitation back. They're called orders, Maverick. I love Tom Cruise, and for the same reason that I love Bill and Ted Face the Music, I just cannot wait for a giant homoerotic nostalgia whack of a movie yes please give me top gun maverick and give me more of it <laughs> great so my number two is dune which we've already talked about so yeah dune and it's my number two as well yeah really excited for dune so yeah back to you hammond right and number one simply because i may well have plenty of fucking time to die before this is released <laughs> it's no time to die please just release this movie so i can watch it don't push it Keep it somewhere near March, April. Get the cinemas open for it. I don't want to wait till October. I don't want to risk. Just let me watch this film, please. Number one, no time to die. Thank you. Paul? Okay, so my number one film is Shang-Chi and Legend of the Ten Rings. Oh, yeah. Because I have absolutely no idea what they're going to do. And it's going to be really interesting to see where they go. Yeah, I'm really excited for that. That looks great. So yeah, my number one is also the same as Hammond. It's, it's no time to die. James, fate draws us back together. Now your enemy is my enemy. His name is Seffin. And what does he want? Revenge. Me. When her secret finds its way out, it'll be the death of you. You can imagine why I've come back to play. I was totally burnt by Spectre. It was just a huge disappointment. And I think it's encouraging this time that Mendes isn't back. I think he was really coerced to get involved with that, that film. And I just think they were doing it for the money. There was no love there. So I'm really excited to see this. I'm really keen to see Jeffrey Wright come back as Felix Leiter because I really liked him in the first two Craig outings as that character. There is no way this film is coming out still in April. The vaccine is not rolling out quick enough. I think we are going to get another pushback on this, but I'm hoping that when it is 
pushed back. It will be the last time um, that it will be pushed back. But I just, it, it, it's it's just so unlikely, with the, especially in the US. In the UK, I think things will be a lot better. But I think in the US, with the way things are going politically and with the, the rate that they're, they're vaccinating people, without the US, I just don't see uh, Eon Productions and Universal MGM putting this out. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, looking traditionally, October is a fairly traditional bond slot anyway. So actually, it could all yeah. kind of fall into place. It sucks. You know, let's let's hope there's enough meat on the bones in some in cinemas in the UK to get open in March, April time. And then, you know, we'll, we'll run into the summer and see. see. But yes. <laughs> Great. So it's on to our two films in review for next episode then, picked by Mercer. So what have we got? So first off, we've got Sylvie's Love, which is Amazon Prime. It came out on Christmas Day. And so this stars Tessa Thompson in the title role. Uh, this is about a summer romance set in Harlem in which the two lovebirds reconnect many years later, where they discover that their feelings for each other have not faded with the years. Yeah, this looks really good. Jazz, Harlem. Tessa Thompson looks great. And then the second pick is Pieces of a Woman. So this isn't out on Netflix yet. It drops this week. So this stars Vanessa Kilby and Shia LaBeouf. And this is about a heartbreaking home birth, which leaves a woman grappling with a profound emotional fallout, isolated from her partner and family by a chasm of grief. Again, this looks absolutely incredible. I have read some very polarizing reviews of this already, but I think it looks great. So yeah, those are the two choices. Fantastic. Two very good things to look forward to. Yeah. That's everything done. And that does bring us to the end. All I have to do is pose my question. So because it does feel like we are ever edging ever closer to the real life version of this film, my question relates to Danny Boyle's 2002 film, 28 Days Later. So the question is, for the London scenes, the police would close the roads in London at 4am and filming would start immediately. The roads would open again at exactly 5am. The producers correctly predicted that asking drivers in London and clubbers trying to get home to wait an hour would piss them off. What trick did Danny Ball use to get around this? Good question. Good question. And that does bring us to the end of our first episode of the new year. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. Great to see you. Happy New Year. And yeah, let's hope that 2021 isn't the fucking dumpster fire that 2020 was. Yes, I echo that sentiment completely. Please, everybody, be good. If you can't be good, be careful. Please also be safe, be healthy, and let's hope we've got that jab in our arms sooner rather than later, and we can get to some semblance of normality by the middle of the year. We're inserting microchips in us, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for having me. It was an honour, and uh, I will trace this for a very long time. And uh, be Bieber Independent Cinema. <laughs> Don't let the down. See you. It's been so great. Thank you so much for your time, Hamish. Bye. You're a gent, Hamish. Thank you so much, mate. Yeah, cheers, Ben. Uh, it was great having Hamish on. And uh, oh no, unfortunately, guys, we can't go because I'm actually gonna I'm gonna put this podcast on lockdown, so you literally cannot go anywhere. You guys are staying here. I'm stuck with the confines <laughs> yeah. of this little screen. Podcast in tier five. <laughs> no, bye everyone. See everyone on the next episode. Great, super. <laughs> You've been listening to Have You Seen This with Paul Breen, Ben Hammond and Ben Mercer. The main theme is written by Akira Ifakubi and remixed by Ben Mercer with beats supplied by Lander. Please like and subscribe and share where possible and check us out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash seen this, S-C-E-N-E this for all the latest updates. All views and opinions in the podcast are those of their hosts. Have you seen The Limey? I think Terence Stamp gives an appalling performance in this film. (laughs) And it also has one of the most amazing director's commentaries on it as well. It's worth a listen. I absolutely love a bad director's commentary. I'm definitely going to have to check that out. And even in the shooting script, uh, I know you cut out a lot of references that I had to uh, this kind of avuncular figure uh, 
who was kind of maybe a father figure to Terence Stamp, even though Terence Stamp is uh, an older character. Uh, but I guess you didn't think that was an, as amusing as I thought it was. No, I think... This is really the root of art. This is really our main argument uh, that we have had before. And, uh, on and will have again. And will have again. So, you know, when I read reviews that say style over substance... Uh, you blame me. Uh, I, yeah, I blame you, and I, I can't actually say they're wrong, because I think there was a lot of detail in the script that you have a tendency to back away from. So perhaps you'd like to use this opportunity to discuss your problem with human relationships and interpersonal connections. Oh, uh, yeah, this is a great time and place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.